The Brief is supported by Bloomberg Connects, the free arts and culture app. Scottish Ghanaian educator Leslie Loco wins the UK's most prestigious architectural accolade. How Britain's perilous pavements are costing the economy half a million pounds a year. 2023 named the hottest year ever by a blistering margin and the almost unbuilt Elizabeth Line station now facing acute overcrowding. My name is Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's big stories in architecture, planning and housing news. Welcome to The Brief from Open City. My guest this week is Siraj Mitha. Siraj is head of Open City's Accelerate programme and postgraduate lecturer at the London School of Architecture. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Leslie Loco has won the 2024 Royal Gold Medal for Architecture, awarded by the Royal Institute of British Architects, that's the RIBA, and reported by the Architects Journal. The Ghanaian Scottish architect is the founder and director of the Africa Futures Institute, the AFI, in Accra, Ghana, and curated last year's Venice Architecture Biennale. The RIBA said Loco was chosen as this year's gold medal winner for her, quote, commitment to championing diverse approaches to architectural practice and education, end quote. The 2024 Honours Committee hailed her work to, quote, democratise architecture, describing it as a, quote, clarion call for equitable representation in policies, planning and design that shape our spaces, end quote. A citation described Loco as, quote, a luminary architect and Renaissance figure who has etched an indelible mark on the global stage, making groundbreaking contributions to architectural education, dialogue and discourse from a global South perspective, end quote, for more than two decades. The committee recognised the AFI, described as, quote, an architectural education centre that reimagines Africa as a crucible of the future, as one of Loco's crowning achievements. Reba president and previous guest of The Brief, Miiwa Oki, described Loco as, quote, a fierce champion of equity and inclusion and a visionary agent of change, end quote. Loco said she is delighted by her win, which came as such a surprise, adding, quote, this isn't merely a personal triumph, this is a testament to the people and organisations I've worked with that share my goals. OK, so Siraj, who is Leslie Loco? Why is her work so important? And why is it such a big deal that she's won the 2024 RIBA gold medal? Uh, firstly, I'd like to congratulate Leslie, who is a fundamental voice in architectural education and the narrative of decolonising architecture. I'm really happy that's being recognised. Aside from being a prolific novelist, she's taught all over the world. She was a professor in architecture at various universities in America, the UK, South Africa. In 2015, she established and directed the Graduate School of Architecture at the University of Johannesburg. She's also the founder and director of the African Futures Institute, which is a new school in Accra, Ghana. And most recently, as you mentioned, she curated the 18th Venice Biennale of Architecture. She's had an incredible career dedicated to establishing a really constructive dialogue between race and architecture, and in doing so has kind of gifted the discourse with a more self-aware, conscious and communicative society, I think she's truly a force to be reckoned with. So Loco, she's recognised for her groundbreaking contributions to architectural education, to dialogue and to discourse from a Global South perspective. These are clearly huge issues which need to be addressed within the industry. Now, Siraj, your own work with Accelerate, Open City's educational programme, negotiates some of these very topics, as well as pursuing inclusivity and equity in the field. 
perhaps you could tell us a bit about how the industry is becoming more inclusive and also what kind of individuals, initiatives, philosophies, projects are doing the most to champion diversity right now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll just start by explaining to listeners what Accelerate is in case they don't know. It's a, it's a free educational outreach program born out of Open City. It's been running for about 12 years now, and it supports teenagers from underrepresented backgrounds to explore what it means to study and work in the built environment. Our work is sort of predicated on diversifying the demographics of architecture in the UK to be more representative of the communities it serves. But Diversity is just one step towards the sort of sectoral reform that we aspire to. Because what's the point of diversifying an industry that's still largely in need of repair? In diversifying the sector, we need to work towards its transformation into something far more hospitable for the people working in it. And that includes a diverse workforce. This does include a lack of representation, but also things like low pay, the marginalisation of workers' rights and responding appropriately to the climate crisis. And there's lots of amazing people and organisations in the sector pushing for structural change right now, including, but not limited to, Beyond the Box, Matt and Fiona, Built by Us, Resolve Collective, Poor Collective, Patch Collective, POC and Architecture, to name just a few of the people doing great things. They're all providing young people with access to arts-based learning and education at a time when creative subjects in schools are being stifled and cut across the country. I've learned a lot from Leslie just listening to her talk. She has an incredible didactic way of, of speaking. I once heard her say, the challenge is not just to change the situation politically, economically and socially. If you really want to make a lasting impact, you need to also change it imaginatively. It's a simple lesson, but it's really stuck with me and it's been a valuable guide in my own work with Accelerate. And I think implicit in the kind of pedagogical strategies that we work on here is social justice and all the things that Leslie mentions, political, economic, social reform. Well, to affect change, it takes a substantial amount of convincing. You have to convince people to invest. You have to convince people to spend their time and their money and their effort on this thing that you believe will make the world a better place. And those aspirations are made far more powerful if they've been conceived and communicated imaginatively. Just coming back to the RIBA gold medal, you know, Leslie Loco, she's the winner this year, really influential person working in this field of diversity and inclusion and broadening perspectives within architecture industry. This award given by the RIBA is widely regarded as one of the highest awards in architecture. Like, you know, this is like getting the Oscar. Like, this is it. Uh, Leslie's taken the, the biggest award that's available. You know, it's a real massive achievement. Now, last year's winner was uh, Yasmin Lari, that's so Pakistan's first female architect. Past winners have included Frank Gehry, Rem Koolhaas, Herzog Muron, uh, David Chipperfield, Peter Zumpther, Zaha Hadid, uh, and also Neve Brown, a uh, social housing architect. So what is the relevance of awards like this to the wider world uh, beyond the architecture industry? Like a lot of those names, not everyone's going to know who they are. And also, are awards like this effective change-making tools? If we think about like politics and society, for example, because we have to admit a lot of the problems are kind of out of the hands of the, the architecture industry. Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. I think the gold medal, like the Sterling Prize or the Pritzker, it's a, it can be a sort of cultural barometer and it can tell you sometimes where the concerns of the industry lie. One thing that's notable about this particular year is that Leslie's portfolio consists less of physical buildings as, uh, as it does 
academic structures and organisations of learning. And I think this means a great deal symbolically. Architecture is undergoing this process of introspection. And every day we're increasing our awareness of the impact and the implications of buildings on the planet. And so it makes sense to me that education and the sharing of knowledge is being culturally recognised and celebrated for that role, for the critical role it's now playing. Now, Leslie is the third woman to be the sole, sole winner of the gold medal since it was first awarded in 1848. So that's Zaha Hadid, yeah. Yasmin Lari. So Zaha Hadid, yeah. It's and 2016. only the third woman to win the award. Zaha Hadid in 2016, Yasmin Lari last year. There are women who have won it before, but they but they shared the prize. So uh, that's we're talking about outright winners. The list of previous winners is obviously composed largely of European men. So in the 176th year history of the gold medal, Leslie Loco is the third woman to be the sole recipient. And I feel like that as a statement is both the reason the gold medal medal is relevant and the reason it's ir- irrelevant. I hope by judging by the last few years of winners that this indicates a broader sort of evolution in the built environment to celebrate such an important voice across the spectrum of global society. And just zoning in on uh, Leslie's work itself, she curated last year's Venice Architecture Biennale. It was titled The Laboratory of the Future. We discussed the Biennale on the show with one of the curators of the British Pavilion. But the wider exhibition, which Leslie curated, focused on Africa and the African diaspora for the first time. Siraj, you went over to Venice earlier in this year to see the opening of the exhibition. What did you make of it? I did go. I was very fortunate. I had a great time. It was fascinating. I'd never been to um, an architectural biennale before, uh, in, in the one in Venice. What, what is an architectural biennale? Yeah, I'm still asking myself that question. <laughs> uh, it's like a giant trade show? No, it it's like a giant... It's like, um, for, 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 people who, for people who have been, probably describe it in a much better way, but it sort of felt like a massive exhibition of interesting projects and ideas. I thought it was fascinating for the sort of breadth of issues that it covered and and the depth and rigour of the projects that it included. Curatorially, I found it really engaging, but for me at least, it felt like a, a real celebration of different cultures and communities, those previously unseen or underrepresented in these types of forums, at a time when the future of architecture seems quite perilous, actually, like this presentation of plurality, diversity and decolonial perspective feels like a necessary antidote not just to the tendency towards nihilism, but also a very, the very real concerns posed by climate change. The exhibition, uh, the, the kind of title of Leslie's curation was The Laboratory of the Future. And it's a title, I think, that signifies a work in progress, like a testing bed for ideas that should be allowed to fail, but work towards something greater than the sum of their individual parts. Like Climate change is actually a common ground that we all share globally, albeit disproportionately. And inevitably, then, voices and solutions and ideas are going to come from places all around the world. And under Leslie's curation, I think, the Venice Biennale reminded us of that. Britain's pavements are becoming increasingly tough to navigate, excluding those with disabilities, mobility issues, many older people and those with pushchairs. This is leading some people to stay indoors as a result. The issue was explored in The Guardian this week. Obstructions, ranging from wheelie bins, e-bikes and cafe tables to poorly maintained pavements and uneven slabs, create significant barriers to many pedestrians. 
Living Streets, a charity working to promote active travel and walking, found that falls on pavements in England resulted in 30,000 people admitted to hospital each year, which costs health services up to £500 million annually. A spokesperson for the charity said, quote, A lot of the funding to fix potholes is for roads. We want some of that funding to be ring-fenced for footway improvements. End quote. Simon Dawes, who is visually impaired and was hit by a car when his guide dog attempted to avoid an obstacle on the pavement, spoke to The Guardian about his experiences. He said, quote, It's a bit of a jungle these days. It's not just people with sight loss that this is affecting. It's also wheelchair users, it's parents with pushchairs, it's mobility scooter users. End quote. Meanwhile, The Guardian also uncovered documents this week which indicate that a shift in transport policy was driven by unfounded fears about potential limits to freedom of movement created by so-called 15-minute cities. Early last year on this show, we dissected the unlikely culture war which erupted out of this simple urban planning concept which aims to ensure all a person's basic needs are accessible within walking or cycling distance from their home. The documents, covered by The Guardian, show how ministers prioritise driving over active travel as a result of conspiracy theories which claim that walkable cities, quote, cost us our personal freedom, end quote, in the words of Tory MP Nick Fletcher. The uncovered papers show how ministers even considered curbs on cycling and walking schemes and proposed to drop plans to improve active travel, quote, quietly, End quote, adding, quote, we would not propose to make any public announcement to this effect. End quote. Okay, so Siraj, what's this all about? Uh, what's your experience of being a pedestrian on the streets around the UK um, in light of what you're hearing from Living Streets? Um, and how has the state of pavements become so bad right now, especially for vulnerable people? Yeah, I think this is really tragic news and is symptomatic of a wider failing of the state to properly invest in the public realm. You see large swathes of improvement in sort of privately owned public spaces, areas like King's Cross, Oxford Circus, Liverpool Street, where pedestrianisation is linked to commerce. But the residential areas that we're talking about here won't necessarily work towards generating revenue for anyone. And I suspect, I suspect this is part of the reason for such state neglect. It's not just another example of prioritising vehicles over people, but also how ill-equipped some parts of the country are to accommodate for a variety of people with different needs. I'm reminded of that book by the feminist architecture collective Matrix, titled Making Space, Women and the Man-Made Environment. Um, I don't know if you remember, on the front cover of the book shows a woman pushing a baby in a pram at this like relentless set of concrete steps. You know, this book came out in 1984, yeah, and it's essentially saying the same thing that rather than catering for the full spectrum of society properly, the built environment is often made for a much smaller group of people. This is exactly the sort of completely avoidable discomfort that so many people face in this country. And with proper policy in place, alongside investment and careful consideration, we can create a much more equitable public realm. Reducing our reliance on individual vehicular transport, better provision of bins, street lighting, and the introduction of wider pavements would be a good start. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad you were citing like the work of Matrix there. Now, just looking at the 15 minute cities element of this, the transport secretary, so Mark Harper, he described 15 minute cities as schemes in which, quote, local councils can decide how often you go to the shops. So just 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 say that again, actually. So Mark Harper, (laughs) who's the transport secretary, is saying 15 minute cities are schemes in which local councils can decide how often you go to the shops. That's end quote. Okay. 
Interesting. And that was said at the Conservative Party conference in October. So that is a statement which is misleading, as we know that it's, this is something which has never been proposed by a local council in the country thus far. They've never said, you know, Siraj Mitha, you can only go to the shop on a Thursday <laughs> evening. Um, that's why we're putting up a, a low traffic neighbourhood in your area or something like that. So, yeah, fascinating, fascinating thing to observe. So, Siraj, why are statements like why are we even having to talk about this on a podcast? Yeah. But you know, how have we got to this state where a conversation around what is quite a basic concept? Why has this conversation become so steeped in division that we're hearing stuff like this from politicians? Yeah, yeah, no, this to me is absolutely fascinating. The conspiracy is that Labour is advocating for legislation that would mean that people would be restricted from travelling beyond 15 minutes of where they live. When in fact, the 15-minute city is an urban planning idea developed by the French-based urbanist Carlos Moreno and is based around localism, easier access to amenities and the reduction of excessive vehicular use. Yeah, the, This lie, which is being regurgitated by Mark Harper, was fabricated in conjunction with a list of other completely spurious claims. I don't know if you remember the mandatory carpooling, the seven different recycling bins, oh, yeah. and the meat tax. Like, uh, And there's something about wonky bananas. Tell me more about this meat tax. Uh, first yeah, I've heard I think, about I, it. I think that, like, yeah, exactly. Like, people were going to have to pay additional tax on the kind of meat that they buy. I, but it was never been proposed by no, anyone ever no, in this country. No, completely yeah. fabricated, um, but, uh, you know, was put on onto the Labour and to the Labour Party. All lies. What is quite disturbing about the 15-minute the city story that we're currently discussing is that it looks like it's being used by the Transport Secretary to justify new planning policy. So this is what it's come to. In 2024, ministers conjure complete lies to manipulate the public and use this as a basis to propose regressive policies. It's clearly the tactics of a desperate government reckoning with a grim electoral fate. So one of the obstructions that is often encountered on pavements in cities like London are rental e-bikes and scooters. Um, Frequently the subject of social media posts uh, where people take a picture of one or many parked in an unusual place you wouldn't expect to see them. So these electric vehicles, they are, as well as being what are seen by some as an obstacle, they're also, however, a really large part of this strategy to make active travel more accessible to people who might otherwise drive. Like, you know, a lot of people are going to use e-bikes more than they're going to use a conventional bike, and bike hire is really convenient for people on so many levels compared to owning a bike. So how do we square that, having greener cities with multiple active transport options, without also alienating pavement users and vulnerable people. Yeah, I think it's it's not enough to provide part of a solution to something that clearly needs holistic development, right? Like e-bikes and scooters are, I think, inherently a good thing for people's health and for cities, causing less pollution. But they need to be regulated and supported properly with docking spaces, transport lanes. They can't come at the expense of a public who are using pavements every day. Yeah, and it does seem like there is a lot that goes into regulating our spaces. I mean, it's not it's not perfect, but for example, when the um, Barclays and then Santander bikes were rolled out, you know, those had planning applications, and the, and a notice is put on a lamppost, and you're like, oh, okay, they're building a dock cycle docking station on my street. Oh, that's lovely, and people have a chance to respond, and so on. And you know, there were reasons. You know, space is you know contested within urban places; it's heavily used, so there has to be negotiation. Local authorities have got like rights to arbitrate on it. 
But then the e-bike comes along and, the you know, outside Waterloo Station, there's like an unofficial e-bike park that's just sort of rocked up on a, a bit of pavement. Now, that's great. It's a kind of anarchic, beautiful thing in many ways, but it isn't always doesn't always work out to be a, a beautiful example of, of, of freedom sometimes it ends up being a tragic example of you know a vulnerable person door to their house is blocked or they can't get their wheelchair down the street to their home do you as a kind of an architect and arbiter of the public space what how would you solve it well it's difficult because i think you know e-bikes are a really really useful resource for lots of people but it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier in that like you you know in a city you need to be able to accommodate a full spectrum a much wider spectrum of people um you know e-bikes are good but they need provision for parking and that can't come at the expense of um someone's journey to work whether they're in a wheelchair or whether they're short-sighted or you know it, it can't come at the expense of um existing pedestrians so i think that we need to see maybe a better level of investment but just a more holistic thinking that thinks about this thing from start to finish so in another Guardian article, the architect and co-founder of the feminist architecture collective Edit, Alberta Lawrenson, has written about the collapse in the number of public toilets and the impact this is having on society. Her article shows how local authority spending on public loos has halved since 2010, with the number of lavatories maintained by councils dropping 19% between 2015 and 2021 alone. What sort of impact is this having on our public spaces and, and the ability of all people in society to fully be able to access them? Yeah, it's a, it's a real it's it's a it's very disappointing to see the number of public toilets decrease in in the country, uh, you know, and and the kind of a shortage of investment into the public realm again, you know, equal to pavements. I mean, public toilets were something that were celebrated in British architectural culture, you know, until quite recently actually, and they can be something of beauty. I, I remember going down to the toilets in in Greenwich, um, just outside the park there, and they are quite beautiful with you know Victorian tile work, etc. So it doesn't have to be this kind of like afterthought. I mean, like if you've got a population of 10 million people in London, necessarily you're going to need to provide provision for them to go to the toilet in public. It's just it's common sense. And Alberta cites several different references i think one of them was in norway um another one's in in tokyo and shibuya which has equally like you know a, um, a very busy population that necessarily requires provisions for for public toilets if other places are doing it, i don't see why we can't like we can't make something work here 2023 has been confirmed as the hottest year ever recorded globally by a blistering margin, leaving scientists scrambling to uncover what contributed to the severity of the heat and what this might mean for the years to come. According to reports in The Guardian, data from NASA and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, that's NOAA, verified last year as the world's hottest since records began in 1850. Records were broken for ocean temperature and Antarctic sea ice extent. The US scientists behind the NOAA data found that last year's average global temperature was 1.35 degrees centigrade hotter than pre-industrial levels, a figure which comes in slightly below the 1.48 degrees centigrade increase that EU scientists calculated using different methodologies. This all comes as the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, has been accused of dodging scrutiny of his environmental policies by failing to appoint a new chair of the Climate Change Committee, 
the independent watchdog set up in 2008 to guide national policies on emissions. More than a year and a half after it was announced that Lord Deben would step down as chair, no successor has been named for the role. This has led critics to accuse Sunak of deliberately delaying the appointment until after a general election to avoid facing criticism for his U-turns on green issues. So, Siraj, after all the climate stories hitting headlines this year, it hasn't come as a surprise that 2023 was the hottest year ever. What was your experience of the, the hottest year on Earth? Uh, yeah, I think this is terrifying, but unsurprising, which sort of feels like a bit of a slogan for the 21st century at this point. My, my experience of it was mitigated by the fact that I live in the UK. And while the country did face its own natural disasters, like storms, heavy rain, floods, the suffering faced by so much of the Earth's population, particularly in the global south, was undeniably worse. Yeah, it was it was a pretty mild year here. Like we had a few hot weeks, but it was nothing like the year before. But you know, obviously, we know that that's purely yeah, that's whatever, just luck or chance, and that really uh, globally the picture is 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 pretty horrific. And then certainly, like by the coverage, I think it was like if you consume news, it's like images of families struggling in a resort which is like surrounded by wildfires or something. And yeah, exactly, it's, you know, so people have gone on holiday to like extremely dangerous, overheated environments. So we we experience that as an observer, but it's certainly evidence of, of the crisis level that we're at. So what what does this record breaking year mean for our built environment? How could architects respond? I think it's difficult to not read this with a level of despair, but it's probably way more useful to reassess your position in in the story. Architects are well aware of the role they play in how the climate crisis develops in the future. According to the World Green Building Council, buildings are currently responsible for 39% of global energy-related carbon emissions, which is massive, obviously. Not only will buildings need to be designed to mitigate rising temperatures and possible natural disasters in a much more robust way, but will also need to reduce reliance on fossil fuels I think a key element in this will be to minimise pointless demolition and use existing building stock as much as possible, which I know is spoken about on this show a lot. We need to take Leslie's advice here and think imaginatively if we're going to succeed. I'm given hope by the progress I'm seeing within the industry from internationally renowned architects like Yasmin Lari, who we mentioned earlier, to smaller collectives like Material Cultures. There's so much amazing work being done right now in disaster management, circular economy and carbon reduction. Also, the students that I teach at the LSA, the London School of Architecture, give me hope. They seem well aware of the context that they're about to enter as professionals and are eager to take up the challenge. The new Elizabeth Line, which opened in May 22, has reportedly become a victim of its own success, with more passengers than ever expected now utilising the newest line on the London Underground. Online blog Ian Visits reported that the new Elizabeth Line station at Woolwich is set to trial a new method of managing crowds, as the station has proved much busier than ever expected, leading to potentially dangerous bottlenecks on the escalators. The station at Woolwich was nearly never built as it was believed not enough people would use the station and it was only added to the Crossrail line when council funding was found to cover some of the costs. The introduction of the station relieved some pressure on the nearby Woolwich Arsenal station and has also seen public transport use surge in the area. Just over a year and a half on from its opening, the station is now struggling to cope with the demand. The station's overcrowding isn't only a problem below ground. The pedestrian supercrossing which connects the Woolwich Elizabeth Line station to the town centre, has seen a large volume of passengers crossing the road, 
and sometimes ignoring the pair of pedestrian crossings, leading Transport for London to consider a redesign. Speaking at a recent council meeting, Councillor Avril Lecao expressed concerns that a redesign would move the problem to a nearby junction. Woolwich isn't the only leg of the Elizabeth Line to be in line with a chance for a redesign. According to reports in the Evening Standard, TfL is trialling different methods to remove the shadow marks left behind passengers who sit at the benches along the network. I don't know if you've seen these, but effectively it's a a cream wall uh, with a little line of benches and everyone sits there waiting for their train, but it's now got a bit of a grease stain. It it does look quite odd. So these ghost-like marks have been caused by people leaning against the walls and damaging the paint over the 20 or so months since the line's been running. A spokesperson for the mayor's office said, quote, a rigorous cleaning program is maintained at all of TfL stations to ensure a clean and safe environment for customers. But the quote goes on. However, TfL is exploring new ways to clean the walls behind seating at some of its Elizabeth Lyon stations to try to remove any marks and to protect the walls in the future. TfL is also trialing the installation of vinyl coverings behind the seating and is in the process of evaluating the results. So, Siraj, what do you make of the Elizabeth line? Nine different architecture studios were involved in it. You've got the Western Williamson and Partners, John McCaslin and Partners, Hawkins Brown, ADAS, Wilkinson Air, BDP, Allies and Morrison, Faraday, Pollard, Adamson Associates, and Foster and Partners. They were all involved in designing these stations, and also there was a consortium led by Grimshaw Architects who ensured line-wide consistency. Siraj, you're a fan of the architecture? I am. I think I think they've been carefully considered and 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 beautifully executed actually. It's a, it's a type of good quality design that actually highlights the poor standards we have elsewhere, which we've just become accustomed to living with. So like the platform width, the variation of carriage seating um, on the Elizabeth line, these are major improvements to what we're used to. My favourite thing, I think, is is the lighting on the new platforms, which is this kind of like soft ambient light. And when you go back to a regular tube platform, you realise how sharp and uncomfortable and interrogative the lighting is there. And I never, I never noticed that until we were provided with something better. And w- what do you make of the fact that parts of this you know, well-designed projects, as you just described, such as the walls behind the station seating, having to be redesigned less than two years after its completion. Um, is this sort of teething issue you'd expect along the way, or do you think some bad decisions might have been made? Yeah, I really I really don't know, I'm afraid. I, I, it did make me think about tube stations and how they probably get more usage than any other piece of urban infrastructure in, in the country mm. um, during the working week. It seems strange that something quite fundamental was missed given the number of consultants involved. As architects, we aim to design things with a maximum lifespan. I I think to an extent you can expect some things to go wrong and there'll always be a maintenance strategy, but you pray they won't be costly when they do go wrong. But I mean, those stations are beautiful and I love the cream walls. It's quite uplifting, but it's like the whole cream carpet scenarios. Like if you buy them, then you're going to have to clean them all the time. Like Victorian underground stations have got white tiles. Someone's got to clean those white tiles, the soot off it. Look at the Jubilee line extension. It's all like grey and gunmetal and like dark blue. It's got this like patina that welcomes the yeah, grime. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, bring it on. Like it gets better and better every year. It's like, how how could they have... Why, yeah, why did you fit it, cream carpets? It, it does <laughs> seem strange. It's like, you, you, you know, there's always going to be a maintenance strategy, but you want things to age well. And especially, you know, in a tube station where millions of people are going to be passing through um, each day. I think this is 
probably something that they a mistake that they didn't anticipate you know rather than one that they uh, had you know have kind of planned for it, it it couldn't have been within their remit within design so yeah this is probably something gone wrong entirely rather than materials weathering in a way that was unexpected and just focusing in on Woolwich station like I, you know certainly before the Elizabeth line opened there were several years where that station was there and it wasn't open because the line was delayed and I'd be like, oh, man, it was so hard to get to Woolwich this evening. If only that Elizabeth line was running, the minute it opens, massively popular station. It's really hard to imagine how at some point someone thought, oh, Woolwich doesn't need this mm. station. Like, it's so obvious that mm. Woolwich needs a big station. But obviously we're in this scenario. We're in this scenario where the stations actually only has one entrance. All the other Crossrail stations got two entrances because they you know there's a high capacity line a lot of people are going to use it what do you think about that what what could sort of be the reasoning i think this is just one of many effects of the kind of never-ending rise in house prices we now read more regularly of like schools shutting down because families can no longer afford to live in more central areas and you know the displacement of community infrastructure outside of more central zones I think it's interesting that the government's inability to regulate the housing market uh, on one end of the spectrum means that they're having to shell out tons of money elsewhere, for instance, by providing more transport stations in areas further away from the capital to those that have had to move because of insurmountable house prices. OK, so we're on to the culture section and we're going to be discussing an upcoming Accelerate debate. Siraj, perhaps you could tell us a bit more about what's next in the series yeah, sure. So Accelerate Debates is a live debate series that we've been running for a couple of years now. It's dedicated to platforming topics we think are important to the evolving discourse of architecture, the built environment and education. It's always really good fun. We've had three we have three debates each year, each with a great panel of guests who are willing to share their insights, their thoughts, their knowledge. The events always held at the Rich Mix in Shoreditch. In previous years, we've discussed decolonizing the architectural uh, canon, the fetishization of craft, and most recently, a really powerful conversation on feminist architecture, which is how we finished last year. So this latest debate is about opening up discussions around architectural workers' rights and the culture of undercutting in the construction industry. That's kind of interesting. So one of them is like... One of the elements is sort of high level. It's to do with businesses mm. undercutting each other. And one is the consequence that that culture then has on the way often people at the lower end of the pay scale are being treated within companies. Can you tell us a bit more about you know, what, what that looks like in reality? Is this a bit like a supermarket that makes loads of cash, but it treats its shop staff really badly? Well, I, I think it's... Um, it's- I think it's more complicated. It's important to ask the question why people in this industry, from student assistants to practice bosses, so often accept things like low fees, high workloads, inadequate salaries when competing for jobs. At a time when the cost of living has become obstructive for most of us, we'll be asking uh, how we can collectively argue for better industry conditions and fairer pay. Rather than fighting over the scraps falling from the plates of those who exploit these desperate conditions, I think access to union support will be crucial in that conversation. Among other things, we'll be asking whether this kind of race to the bottom, which is the name of the debate, is uniquely endemic to design and whether there are lessons we can learn from other industries that do demand and enjoy better conditions. 
Okay, and so these sorts of topics, like people could read about these in a book or an article, they could listen in a podcast, but why is it so important like to come and see a debate about it? Like, Why is a debate such an excellent forum for like actually doing something really meaningful and valuable? Um, I think they provide a useful forum for people to disagree with each other, have a conversation, fight their case. It's not necessarily about being right, at least not in the debates that we hold. It's more it's more about that kind of collective discussion where people can share ideas and be challenged in a healthy, non-adversarial way. So it's called Race to the Bottom. Uh, where can listeners go to find out more about this series? How are they going to get tickets? Where is it? When is it? Yeah, so the next debate is called The Race to the Bottom. As you say, it takes place on the 28th of February at the Rich Mix. That's the 28th of February. Tickets are now available from the Open City website. Doors are at 6.30, the show starts at 7, goes on for a couple of hours. There's always audience participation. It's kind of usually split into two rounds where the second round is a more general discussion. And I always love how active the audience are in that. And it, gen- it ends up being this kind of fantastic communal conversation where the mic goes down into the audience and, and, and people are speaking to each other in, in a, a really... Um, fantastic way. I hear it's got a really good host as well. <laughs> yeah, I'll be I'll be um, hosting. I'm not always the host. I'll be hosting this time um, alongside Zafia Amin, who works with me um, uh, at Open City uh, in the education team, and we'll be joined by Nimi Atanayake, uh, who's the co-founder uh, and director of NimTim Architects. Richard Hanley Timmins, who's an architect and RIBA counsellor. Ajmal Wakif, who will be representing the trade union IWGB, which stands for International Workers of Great Britain. And Deborah Abadakin, who is an Accelerate alumni and also a, a freelance interior designer. So they'll, they'll be joining us on stage for this next debate. Uh, I think um, there are a few more guests, TBC. Fantastic. Okay, so that's Race to the Bottom, 28th of February at rich mix also in the calendar for open city calendar events coming up i just want to let everyone know we've got the architecture on the thames boat tour east this is a really cool tour that starts at greenwich pier and goes east and charts the amazing infrastructure and buildings and architecture that you'll see in the lower stretches of the river thames i think it comes back to greenwich it's a beautiful day out saturday 3rd of february from 1pm onwards. Okay, that's all from us today. Siraj, it's been an enormous pleasure to feature you on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And where shall listeners go so they can stay up to speed on your writing, their social media handles or a website? We've got um, Open City Education on Instagram and LinkedIn. I occasionally write for Architects Journal, sometimes BD, which is which is always great. Yeah, so please do, or drop me a message on my personal LinkedIn. Yeah, please do say hi. Fantastic, thanks very much. You've been listening to The Brief from Open City, made in association with the London Society and the 20th Century Society. This show is made possible in part thanks to Bloomberg Connects, a free digital guide to art and cultural organisations around the world. A link to download Bloomberg Connects is in the show notes. If you've enjoyed The Brief and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which covers all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to The Brief and support Open City's wider work empowering young people from underrepresented communities, please become an Open City friend today. The link is in the show notes. The Brief is produced by Poppy Waring and hosted by Phineas Harper, Merlin Fulcher, Cyber Chadder and Fran Williams. The series editor is Merlin Fulcher. 
Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible and equitable. <laughs>